Good evening. My name is Gayatri Ramprasa. I'm the founder and president of Asha International. Everyone has a story. Stories connect us, comfort us, let us know that we're not alone, and give us hope to cope, survive, and thrive. Stories have the power to save lives and create social change. Our story is our superpower. At ASHA International, we are dedicated to destigmatizing mental illness and promoting mental health and well-being at schools, in workplaces, and in the community through the power of storytelling. Tonight, incredibly courageous storytellers will share their stories of hope and resilience to raise awareness of mental health as an integral part of personal, organizational, and community wellness. Together, we will shine a light on mental health and end stigma one story at a time. My story, My Superpower, was recorded Wednesday, May 29th, in Hillsboro. The first story is by Diane. I am here to give voice to the children, teenagers, and adults who have died by suicide or right now are attempting suicide even as I speak. I am here to break the silence and end stigma by sharing my story. I am here because hope is real and change is possible. Empathic relationship is the healing matrix and time spent on this, like our time together now, is never wasted. I'm here on behalf of all those who have suffered in shame because they were taught that perfection in someone else's eyes is what matters most and to be yourself is a crime worthy of death. My mother first named me Sarah, but she felt Sarah sounded too much like the Yiddish word saras or grief. And because I was sick and remained in the hospital after my birth, I instead became Diane, named after her only childhood doll. Days later, the hospital nurse cried out to my father, Get that baby out of here. Take her home. She feared my life was at risk in the hospital due to neglect. My father took me home. My mother had stopped visiting me as she thought I would die. I have often fantasized that this nurse was my fairy godmother. I was sexually assaulted, sodomized as a young child by some older children who lived down the block. My father was a bully at home and in our neighborhood. My much older sister and brother were both valedictorian of their high school classes. This, unfortunately for me, led to my feeling insecure, inadequate, and jealous. I wanted to be them, not me. 
I found the love letter my father had written to his mistress when I was a teenager. When I graduated high school, a well-intentioned teacher wished me well, but then called me by my sister's name. I appeared to be outwardly normal and a success despite experiencing anxiety, depression, and episodes of what I later learned was hypomania. I attempted suicide in medical school. Looking back, I was probably having a bipolar II mixed episode. Alone in my dorm room, I took an overdose of aminophilin, which is an asthma medication. I knew it could kill me, and that's what I wanted. I had boyfriend problems, but I was also living a lie, trying to be someone else so I could be loved. But instead of dying, I started to vomit blood and ended up in the emergency room, NG tube, charcoal, medically admitted psychiatric consult. The psychiatrist asked if I wanted to be in the psych unit shocked back into, I am a medical student, this can't be happening to me. I said, no. How could I ever be a psychiatrist if anyone ever knew I tried to kill myself? And even worse than that was admitted to a psychiatric hospital. My no was meant as a shield but it made me even more isolated, my emotional turmoil a secret, with no one present to listen. Did you know that the suicide rate in doctors is the highest of any profession? That one doctor every day ends their life by suicide? And that the suicide rate of doctors is more than twice the general population? Even within the medical community, there is stigma against mental illness. 20 years later, my father asked for my forgiveness. He said, when I was hospitalized, he spoke these words to me. The next time you want to kill yourself, Diane, tell me, and I will tell you the right way to do it. I have no memory of his telling me this, but I do recall his dangling the check high above my head while driving me to doctor's appointments so I would have to reach up and grab it. My father's cruel way of repeatedly humiliating me for receiving mental health treatment after the hospital discharge. My mother used to tell me, your father does not know how to love. Did he believe we were created to be the cure he could not find in himself? Was that the source of his need to have total control? The perfection in his eyes only? The my way or the highway? The silent treatment? my watching him beat my brother with a hairbrush for repeatedly dropping it, not knowing my brother had epilepsy, his demanding we all become doctors when he could not meet that dream in his own life, 
Are we meant to remain frozen victims within another story? Renowned psychoanalyst and psychiatrist Carl Gustav Jung has said, the greatest burden a child must bear is the unlived life of their parents. My father was a, pr a product of his time. His addiction to dexedrine and amphetamine began at my birth. Strangely, I was part of the reason why. With my being so sick at birth, my mother became depressed and the doctor gave her dexedrine. She did not like it. My father tried it and liked it. He was self-medicating his depression. My being a sensitive child opened my heart to the pain in others. Having been silenced during my growing up, I was inspired to claim my own voice, to release and express it, and to help others set themselves free creatively. I was on a life journey to become an arts and healing psychiatrist, but I did not yet know this. What can sustain and nourish us as we travel life's journey? I have learned that taking care of myself is not being selfish. For if my well-being has not been filled, I have but little to offer myself and others. Therapy, medication, friendship, sharing life's laughter, joy, and tears with others, knowing, really knowing, that asking for help is strength, not weakness. Offering help is compassion and not a power trip. To be emotionally well is knowing I was born to live and that I have a purpose, even when no one tells me, not my family, my friends, my society, and even when I've turned my own self against myself. This I know to be true. There is a self greater than myself who wants me to live, and even more importantly, knows I can live even more strongly, more bravely, and more amazingly than I have ever done before. To rekindle and restore the wellness of our inner self is a lifelong process of restorying ourselves. Many people have suffered the darkness of depression and emerged whole and into the light. Rebirth from ashes is the phoenix bird flying. May we all be empowered to break the silence and end stigma by sharing our mental health stories with our heads held high. For in the timeless words of Rabbi Hillel, if I am not for myself, who will be? But if I am only for myself, who am I? And if not now, when? The greatest gift of all is to be seen and heard. That was Diane telling her story. Next up is Molly. When I look back on my childhood growing up in Portland, I have fond memories. 
plane capture the flag, going on annual camping trips and beach trips, having neighborhood block parties, and playing different seasonal sports. For the most part, I was a happy kid with no significant signs of anything concerning. The time finally came for me to graduate eighth grade from a small school I had been attending since kindergarten. As it is for most eighth graders, the thought of high school was intimidating, but it was especially for me because I was going to attend Grant High School, a public school. With no friends from grade school, attending this high school with me I was desperate to make friends as soon as possible. Me being a typical high schooler, I wanted to be cool and popular. The need to be cool and popular took me down a road I never thought I would go. I considered myself an intelligent, well-rounded girl who would never get into anything too dangerous or stupid. The group of friends I surrounded myself with were curious teens who wanted to experiment. I will take responsibility for myself because I was curious too. What started out as innocent, occasional pot smoking and drinking grew into much more over the course of my high school career. My sophomore year, I was smoking pot at least once a day, drinking every weekend, and eventually started using hard drugs like cocaine, ecstasy, acid, and mushrooms. I had made all the friends I had ever wanted, and over time I was known as the party girl. However, the pain and suffering that was going on inside of my mind and body was unexplainable. I became severely depressed and anxious suffering from panic attacks and hypochondria. It was hard to be in public, let alone be at school. These panic attacks were so horrific, I thought at any moment I would have a heart attack. To try to put into words what my anxiety felt like and still at times feels like, including feeling unable to breathe, feeling a tightness and pressure in my throat as if it was closing, feeling a weight on my chest and a gut-wrenching, shooting pain throughout my stomach. My depression included sleeping more hours than hours awake because I didn't have to feel as much when I was asleep. Isolating myself from others, feeling worthless, hopeless, and insecure, and an inability to truly feel pleasure, laughter, or joy. My coping skills became the substances I once innocently used. The relationship with my parents was non-existent. I was disrespectful in every way you could imagine. Therapy and medication was a routine I grew used to but it never seemed to lift me from the hole I had buried myself alive in. In a recent article I read from the New York Times, it dives into the shocking statistics of suicide, mental health, and drug abuse in teenagers today. One in seven high school students 
reporting misusing drugs. What I dealt with in high school is still very prevalent today. There's strong data to show that family support and attention by parents to what their teens are doing can make a huge difference in an adolescent's life. Communities can support access to mental health and substance use services, and schools can offer coping skills and bystander intervention training. I barely made it through high school. My senior year was coming to an end, and I was crossing my fingers I would graduate. It was May 27th. My mom, my brother, and I were driving home from school when my mom received a phone call. My dad was in the hospital. He had a heart attack. That very same day, my dad passed away. My life didn't feel real. I'd been suffering so much with my mental health that this was too much for my brain to even process. The years following my dad's death were dark. The grieving was hard to process through with all the drinking and using I continued to do. But I didn't want to feel anything. I wanted to self-medicate the way I always had before. I was living at my mom's house unable to hold down a job. Sleeping all day and drinking all night. I remember one day my mom brought me a free yoga pass and encouraged me to go. With anxiety in my chest, I mustered up the courage. After leaving the class, I couldn't remember the last time I had felt so good. My breathing was deep. My body felt so light and free. Although it was fleeting, it was nice. I'd like to say that I kept going back, but I didn't. Maybe I didn't feel I deserved to feel good. Maybe it was such an unfamiliar feeling that it seemed wrong. As years passed, I lost touch with a lot of friends from high school, which was a blessing in disguise because I didn't have as many people to use with. This started me on a healthier path since I wasn't able to constantly check out with drugs and alcohol. I had more time to heal and make healthier choices. At 22, I finally got a job and I moved out on my own. I was so proud of myself. But as I've learned, over time, life can throw you curveballs. And it is how you perceive and react to these curveballs that determine your outcome. During this time, I had been drinking a diet tea product. I'd been drinking it for about a week. I had so much energy, I was able to multitask, and I was hyper aware of my surroundings. I loved to sing, and I was feeling extra confident, so I posted a video on Facebook of me singing. The next morning, I thought the video went viral. When I went out and about, I thought people were recognizing me all over the city. I was so excited. I thought I had been discovered, and my dream had come true. These thoughts quickly started spiraling out of control. 
My family became very worried by my behavior and later would find out I was having a full-blown manic episode. I was running around all over the city absolutely delusional. I was acting just like the people you see, homeless on the street, in my own world, talking to myself, acting irrational, and I had no control over what was happening to me. I was finally hospitalized, three times to be exact. Before I was stabilized, and I was finally diagnosed with bipolar disorder. After being hospitalized, I went to outpatient treatment for six months, where I was properly medicated and educated about my disorder. Shame, guilt, and sadness consumed me. I had people I had known for a long time stop talking to me. Although what happened to me was out of my control, I felt like I was being punished. Most of the people in my life, including myself, were uneducated about bipolar disorder and didn't know how to help me. It has been a long road from then until now. With support, medication, education, diet, exercise, hobbies, meditation, and a whole lot of self-love, I am proud to say I'm a certified yoga instructor. I released my first single through a record label, and I'm going to school in winter for health and nutrition. I chose to go through yoga teacher training to enlighten myself. I wanted another tool I could add to my recovery. As an instructor, I want to bring a sense of peace and calm through the poses and breathing exercises. I also want to help others who are struggling with their mental health, much like I was. After a few years passed from my diagnosis, I started feeling the need to tell my story and bring awareness to the community about mental health. I found Asha through a woman I heard speak at a charity event who is also a storyteller. After I joined Asha, I started to share my story at local high schools and have felt such a sense of peace and empowerment through sharing my story. When for so long, I felt shame, guilt, and sadness. I've had multiple young teens come up and confide in me after hearing my story. They feel courageous enough to open up about their struggle after I did. I am able to give them advice and hope, which is so important and rewarding. Humans can adapt and recover. It takes time and effort to find out what works best for you, but you can do it. With all of these tools and coping skills I've learned, I am proud to say I haven't had a manic episode since my first one, almost six years ago. And I plan to keep it that way. <laughs> Struggling with your mental health does not mean you cannot recover and live a full life. I'm here to tell you, you can. I'm proud to be a part of ASHA to bring hope and resilience to others and to end the stigma around mental illness. Does my story make you uncomfortable? <laughs> Good, because there has never been any positive change 
without people feeling a little uncomfortable. That was Molly. This is Paul telling his story about mental health at the My Story, My Superpower event, recorded Wednesday, May 29th in Hillsboro, sponsored by ASHA International. So a week before my 34th birthday, I had a heart attack. Thankfully, it was minor, especially since I refused to go to the ER until the following day. So at this point, two questions probably come to mind. The first is, wait, what did he say? And the second is, who even does that anyway? <laughs> this guy. I didn't want to admit anything was wrong. I didn't want to take time out of my really demanding work schedule to be told bad news or worse, waste my time. I was in denial, depressed, a little scared, and as I later learned, clinically anxious. But to help understand how I got there and ultimately how I got here, I think it's important to understand where I started. I grew up in a small farm town in northern Indiana. I was a country kid, a nature lover, stereotypical sports boy, and an introvert. One of those work hard, eat your meat and veggies, aw shucks, types of places. <laughs> because of that upbringing, a big part of my identity has always been rooted in my work ethic, and my capacity for working long hours, and we're talking seriously long hours. When I decided to practice landscape architecture, that work ethic kicked in a high gear. Design professions can be brutally demanding. We're trained to work long hours in the design studio, striving for perfection, proving ourselves worthy by working all night and forsaking relationships with anyone who's not in the studio with us. There's this romantic notion that you've got to suffer for your art and your living. To this Midwestern kid, all of it made perfect sense. Work hard, show you care, get praise, rinse and repeat. As I grew in the profession, this demand for excellence only grew stronger. And that model continued to make sense to me for a really long time, until it didn't. Back in 2015, I was in an unhealthy place. The year prior, I got divorced, ending a 15-year relationship. And on Christmas Eve, my oldest friend and closest friend of over 30 years died in a car accident. I poured myself into my work thinking that the creativity and the drive to succeed would sustain me. Some colleagues even reinforced it was the correct approach. Just focus on work, you'll get through it, they said. It's natural. Hey, can you work this weekend? Oh, come on, we know you can do it. Turns out I couldn't do it anymore. Instead, I had a blip on an EKG that confirmed I had a minor heart attack. I've since learned that depression increases the risk of adverse cardiac events in people without known heart disease. So the warning signs were there, I just didn't see them. I was completely overcome by the stress from both life and work, and I didn't know how to manage it. On top of that, my, my self-image as someone who could be dependent on ev under every circumstance, no matter how difficult, started to unravel. And mentors stopped advocating for me when I became less valuable in their eyes, and at that point I felt too weak to be an advocate for myself. I took a week off of work. I was depressed, I felt hopeless, I felt completely worthless, and I felt just done. My inclination was to withdraw from the general public and spend my days alone in my apartment. But after some strong encouragement to get outside and exercise, I decided to go for a bike ride. I hadn't really ridden in years, and the first few miles were slow and painful. And let's just be honest, the whole ride was slow and painful. <laughs> I've been active and athletic my entire life, and it was embarrassing how unhealthy I had become. But I stuck with it for that entire week, forcing myself to go outside daily and slowly added miles. 
But even as I was depressed about so many things in my life, with fitness somewhere in the middle of that list, I noticed something positive. Cycling was helping me to decompress, clear my mind, and manage my depression. I kept at it, and as an added bonus, my physical health rapidly improved in a matter of months. Like when I first learned to ride as a child, I was hooked by the beauty and freedom of cycling. Fast forward to 2017, in a healthier place, both physically and mentally, I woke up one morning having literally dreamt of a community where all are welcome to celebrate cycling and everything that makes it great. The big idea was a group of individuals looking for their people, a place where they could belong and find the support to push themselves. From that initial dream, my apparel company, Roulet Cycling, was born. At Roulet, we believe that the strongest bonds are built through diversity, empathy, and the support of community. To live out those values, I also created the Club Roulet, a cycling community based in Portland. The Club Roulet is multi-layered, including partners who have embraced the club's mission and lend their support in multiple ways. And cyclists in the Club Roulet are a diverse group who embrace empathy and have created a kind and inclusive culture where all are welcome. This community has been instrumental in my own ongoing healing process. Research has demonstrated a correlation between anxiety, depression, and heart disease, as well as a relationship between physical health, mental health, and social connectedness. Part of what I hope you take from my story today is that we can grow beyond our training in our environment. We can all get better about accepting ourselves and each other for who we are, seeking out the support we need, and doing what is necessary to live healthy lives. It's easy to forget there are many approaches for managing depression and anxiety. Two of the more common methods, medication and one-on-one -on -one counseling, worked for a lot of people, but they didn't work for me, <coughs> and that's okay. We're all different, and just because one method works for some person doesn't mean it will for you too. Keep trying until you find something that works. While my something was physical activity, the single biggest factor in helping you fight depression on a day-to-day -day basis is the support of community. I'd like to leave you with four takeaways. One, find a community to participate in, and in that community, find a way to support others. Helping other people can help you. While I often love the solitude of riding alone, these days when I'm riding alone, I often wonder what other members of the club are doing. Is anybody out riding? Are they doing it together? Maybe I'll run, out, run into them out here. That community means the world to me. Two, Extend grace and acceptance to each other, and especially to yourself. Nobody's perfect, and your value is not tied to how long you can suffer alone. Three, be aware of the signs that something isn't quite right, and learn the difference between little bumps in the road and crisis. And finally, four, trust and respect feelings. They are so valuable. Sharing our feelings and stories, oh, that was invitators. Um, <laughs> sharing our feelings and stories leads to empathy. It helps each of us understand that we are not the first to experience whatever we're going through. My hope is that telling my story will encourage and empower you to share yours. Empathy brings us closer together. Greg Lamont is considered by many the greatest American cyclist of all time. And one of his most famous cycling quotes is, it never gets easier, you just go faster. <laughs> there are no shortcuts. There is no such thing as perfection. Find that supportive community that will push with you. And remember that life never gets easier, we just get better at it. Let's roll together. That was Paul. Next up is Aaron. Why continue to go to therapy if you just keep acting up? My parents yelled to my sister. You're just wasting our money. 
She nodded and stopped going to therapy. She never went back. Six years later, her suicidal thoughts did not subside. She no longer talks about the status of her mental health. She still suffers from both anxiety and depression. However, I now suffer from anxiety and depression too. Growing up, I thought I was emotionally healthy, especially when coming from a large family from both my mother's and father's side. Family gatherings were lively, music blasting in the house, laughter filling the empty spaces in the room, distant relatives, even ones I've never met before, joining in via phone calls or video chats, always inquiring about what's new. But when looking back, I realized that we tend to shy away from the important topics. Mental health was not discussed at my house. The reasons, similar to most people of color, were cultural. As a family who derived from the Philippines, a third world country, my parents believed that only the strong would survive. Those who were weak, or rather those with a mental illness, either wouldn't make it or were seen as disposable anyways. To my parents, depression and anxiety were only something that those who were privileged could get. In other words, this meant only the wealthy, the people that don't know a thing about struggle, could afford to worry about. <coughs> I found that immigrants learn to find the discomfort or comfort within the, the discomfort and sadness that comes from the intergenerational trauma within our lineage. It becomes a background noise that encompasses the majority of our lives, while many even succumb to it in silence. But I guess you could say that the emotional pain and lived experience is the cost for immigrants that immigrants pay in search for a better life. Coming from a family who sacrificed so much to be here, I never questioned it. This is why when my sister was the first one in my life who was brave enough to speak up about mental health in my family, I realized that this subject was taboo. She sought out help from my family in order to seek refuge from the darkness. In turn, they had shamed her. From then on, as the only other parent my child, or only other child my parent had, I knew that I had to be the normal one. This meant I had to always have a smile plastered in front of my parents, uh, in front of my face for my parents. This correlated with a 2011 study that showed that Asian Americans typically avoid mental health services because opting to utilize such services meant requiring admitting the existence of mental health, and that may cause shame to the family if personal issues become public. This spoke volumes to me as I was uh, bottling up my deteriorating mental health like a hushed secret for the last decade. I thought that if anyone knew, but most importantly, if my parents knew, I would be branded like a scarlet letter like Hester Prynne for depression and anxiety were things I was taught to be ashamed of. My depression began in my early teenage years. I didn't think it was a problem. I assumed feeling low, isolating myself for long periods of time, and the inability to communicate was normal. As young as 13, I suffered from both panic and anxiety attacks. A few of my friends knew, but I rarely ever mentioned it, and never to my family. According to NCBI, Filipino Americans are the second large immigrant population and Asian ethnic group in the U.S. health disparities for youth behavioral health problems. This truth extends out to any Pacific Islander, Asian, and Asian Americans. If you ask especially women, they will tell you about the pressures of growing up in many Asian households. The high expectations, maintaining that picture-perfect facade, the toxic model minority bullshit that engulfs the rest of our lives as a way to flatten out our experiences in order to conceal our struggles and cap our successes. There is a standard expected of us from birth of being able to stand out for the right reasons, meaning good grades, fancy career, 
high salary, good social standing, and a shelf full of achievements. In my family's minds, having a mental illness can prevent you from achieving those things. And if you're not achieving everything, then why are you even here? So when I would imagine killing myself, I would often think of my parents and their sacrifices. I would think of my sister, who I love more than anyone else, and my friends who acted as a pillar of support, and I would hate myself. As I got older, I found depression to be a cruel friend, constantly shifting, shifting shapes and sizes. Some days I would feel as small as ants crawling around my kitchen table. The next, I would, it would be the size of city buildings hanging over my head, just to remind me of how small I am. As my teenage years passed me by, my brain transformed into a TV that I could not turn off. There were limited numbers of channels on repeat. Channel one, my mother and father holding me close, cradling me in their arms as if I was still a child. My head, it begins to throb. Burn, I am burning, I am burning, please. Why is no one holding my hand? It hurts, it hurts to see the love I yearn for but have not received. I switch the channel. Channel two, it's dark. I am alone, I am beginning to remember all of the things I have done, I have failed to do. Ghosts of my past continuing to haunt me, old faces to taunt me, I must be broken, I must be bruised, I must be bad. I can't seem to move. Someone make it stop. Please, please make it stop. I finally remember I do not want to die. Channel three, I do not feel a thing. Numbness continues to surround me. Who is that? Is this me? These are my memories, but it does not feel like me. I want to go home. I'm crying. Someone please just take me home. My life began to feel like I was on autopilot. The life I was living was nowhere near sustainable, but it was the only thing I knew. In order to maintain the picture-perfect facade, I had thought I mastered. I continued to rationalize my self-destructive behavior if it meant I was not burning those around me. I had worked myself to the bone like this until December 2017. Within three weeks, I had attempted to commit suicide three different times, crashing my car, self-harming, and overdosing. At the start of the new year, I knew something had to change. This is when I ultimately decided to seek help and open up to my sister about what I had been going through. From here, she had helped challenge the internalized beliefs I had held about mental health and helped me find a therapist nearby. My therapist has helped me get my life back on track in both micro and macro levels. For example, my therapist has helped teach me how to focus on my breathing, use my five senses to connect to reality, and count colors to help keep me grounded. She also helped me reveal the poetry beneath my wounds and understand all of the trauma that has led me here today. Although I still suffer from mental illnesses, I do not mind hands staining my hands red if it means the future will have less blood to clean up, but that doesn't negate all of the work that needs to be done for change to happen. As this reality continues, we will continue to have younger generations having to parent themselves into maturity in the hopes of living another day. This is why I urge you all to help me advocate for change in dismantling the stigmas around mental health. Oregon happens to be the second leading state in deaths by suicide. There needs to be major conversations within our communities to call to action to bring new, innovative, culturally relevant, and effective ways to break down the barriers 
and address mental health in a way that not only serves the community, but also benefits those in it. By speaking up about our feelings, by listening to one another, by being more patient, compassionate, and empathetic towards one another, we're able to create a safe space for others to come forward and do the same. At ASHA International, we understand that mental health affects us all. We understand how easy it is to feel alone in your own battles against mental health and aim to increase awareness through our storytelling. Our organization help, uh, helps fight alongside you and your community. However, real change starts within our communities. It starts with you, me, it starts with us. Thank you. That story was told by Aaron. Our next storyteller is John. First time I shared my story publicly, I started by saying that I'm probably not the face that you would typically put on mental illness. And someone kind of pointed out to me that I was really just getting my own biases. Because I'm not the face that I expect to see it here. I don't fit the stereotypes that I've held for someone with a mental health condition because my life is great. And it's pretty much always been good. I, like Natalie, I went to Sunset High School. I went to Westmont College, I graduated from USC Law School, and I had a job waiting for me at one of the largest law firms in the world. I worked in their Los Angeles office. A while later, I moved back home. Now I'm a co-owner of a law firm. I've had an amazing life, and we have a spectacular and hilarious almost two-year-old daughter. Things are good. And I've never had a rock-bottom moment. Because of this, I've had the luxury of hiding my mental health issues if I want to. But I think for too long, too many people who have been standing in my shoes have chosen to hide these things. And I want to change that. Ten years ago, I flew all the time for work. And when I was in the air, I would sometimes dream about my plane crashing in the wilderness because I wanted to be Tom Hanks in Castaway. As I'd fly back into LA at night, I'd see the city lights, and my heart would sink because my life was still there waiting for me. See, I was successful, but I was miserable. I couldn't figure out what was my stressful job and what was maybe something inside of me. But I was ready to quit, and I wanted to live on a friend's couch in Washington, D.C. That was probably my most realistic escape fantasy. I told a friend about it, and she suggested maybe I should talk to a therapist before throwing my career away. I'm really glad she did. In my first session with Dr. Greenberg, she said that she preferred using therapy over a combination of therapy and medication. And I was like, okay. I think maybe some people, when they go to therapy, they have a self-diagnosis in mind. And maybe they know what medication they want. But I didn't. Until that day, it had never crossed my mind that I might have a diagnosable condition. Well, it turns out I'm the exception for Dr. Greenberg because she immediately sent me to a psychiatrist for medication. <laughs> I think what did it is when I told her that on my drive to work in the morning, on the 10th freeway, I'd, I'd dream about crashing my car into the median so I could get to go to the hospital. Now, I was never suicidal, and I really never wanted to die. I really didn't want to hurt my brain, um, but I thought maybe breaking a leg would give me a break from work for a few weeks. I learned then that I suffer from generalized anxiety disorder. And at first that diagnosis didn't sit well with me because I'm naturally pretty stoic and optimistic. I'm calm and even keeled and nothing phases me. 
meanwhile, though, on the inside, sometimes I'm in turmoil. And I waited way too long to address my anxiety and that conflict. And I believe that's what led to my second diagnosis, which is dysthymia. Dysthymia is a form of low-level depression where it doesn't have the really low lows, but it also doesn't cycle in and out. And so you don't ever have a good moment. And what it meant is I was basically bummed out for a decade. To treat my anxiety and depression, my psychiatrist gave me Prozac. And then he gave me Clonopin for the days when the anxiety was really bad. A few weeks after starting treatment, I was flying back into LA at night again, and I saw the city lights. I felt good. It was such a small moment, but I was excited to be home. And that's when I knew I was going to be okay. I continued with treatment and medication for two years. And at the end of that, the depression was gone completely, and it's never come back. The anxiety is trickier. It's a lot stickier. I remember experiencing anxiety as early as six years old. My first grade teacher, Mrs. Nagel, was a wonderful teacher, and she held us to a very high standard, and I was terrified of disappointing her. So if I didn't fall asleep at precisely 8.30, I would start crying, because I was afraid that if I went to sleep late, then I'd wake up late, and if I woke up late, then I get to school late, and if I got to school late, then Mrs. Nagel would be mad at me. And that's always been the core of my anxiety. My body freaks out if I think there's a chance that I might disappoint somebody. And yet I also feel like it's my responsibility to not let anyone be disappointed ever. There's kind of an issue. Today my anxiety still manifests physically. I get headaches, I clench my teeth, I stiffen my neck, I get tightness in my chest. I can actually feel my blood pressure going up when the anxiety grips me. I'll wake up in the middle of the night with my heart pounding and thoughts just spinning through my mind. And as soon as I deal with one, another one just pops up to take its place. And it feels out of control. And sometimes the anxiety is tied to real life stressors and work. I still have a stressful job. But other times it's not. Even when everything's smooth, my body will still find things to be anxious about because that's how generalized anxiety goes. If we have plans out of the house on a Sunday night, my wife and I, I will start to get anxious because I feel like I'm not going to be prepared or ready for work on Monday morning. In a funny way, I'm still afraid of being late to school. When we share these stories, people often say that we're brave. I appreciate that. I really do. Um, because it is really, really scary for all of us to stand up here and share these things. Sometimes when people tell me I'm brave, they also admit that they don't think they could ever share these things publicly. I get that. If we think we're an outcast or alone or different, it would be really hard. But that's not the case. These stories tonight, our stories, are incredibly common. There's nothing special about my story. I'm not unique at all, especially among attorneys. Only one-third of attorneys will self-identify struggling with anxiety, depression, or substance abuse in an anonymous survey. So that's three times the rate of the general public. And I have a feeling if we found out the true rate of attorneys who are suffering, it'd actually be much higher. I don't think I'm the exception. I think I'm actually the norm. And anxious attorneys are actually really good attorneys. <laughs> the best lawyers I know are anxious. I've had law firm partners tell me that they look for young, anxious attorneys because they work the hardest, and they never drop the ball. 
being a lawyer is about identifying and addressing the worst case scenarios. So having a lawyer who's a natural warrior kind of makes sense. And yet, even in the legal field, the stigma around anxiety and depression persists because we don't have a good, enough good examples. We don't have enough success stories. And so there's something all of us tonight and all of you can help with. Things are going okay for you, and you've ever had anxiety. If your life is going well, and you've ever suffered from depression, you've been stressed out. If you look good on paper and things are okay, and you have the luxury of getting to hide your mental health issue, please don't. If we're all willing to share our struggles, then everyone will know this truth. We can have mental health conditions and be successful. We can have mental health issues and be happy. I am. That was John, and our last storyteller of the night will be Lily. I've been living in the Pacific Northwest for 26 years. I flew out from Upper State New York to Portland State University to attend a master's in social work program. I'm now, I now work as a licensed clinical social worker in my private practice that I've had for 11 years. I'm here today on behalf of all of us who put on a brave face, but inside feel broken, profoundly depressed, and potentially like a fraud. I want to share a part of my story to encourage honesty, inspire healing, and to bring hope. I want to just be me, genuine and real with the hope of helping you be honest with yourself and consider starting a healing journey, too. I hope this small sharing will ignite your interest in raising the standard of mental health care in families, communities, and the workplace, workforce. I want to encourage us all to abolish stigma associated with the invisible injury we call depression so that we can step out of the darkness and live with great intention. My slow descent into depression started at the age of five after witnessing my dad cry for the first time in response to his father, my grandfather, passing. I began to question existence, which led to big thoughts for a small girl. With no one to talk to or share those confusing thoughts and questions, I kept it all within. As I grew, I experienced other confusing moments, including molestation by both boys and girls, incest, racism, sexism, and understanding that I was adopted and therefore somehow different. I carried all of these questions and experiences within and began to answer my questions with, it's because you're worthless, you don't matter, and you have no purpose. In spite of the many internal challenges I faced growing up, I became a top athlete, kept good grades, worked two jobs, and then graduated from college. I got married, had two boys, completed a graduate program, and worked successfully throughout. On the outside, I appeared happy, confident, successful, accomplished. But on the inside, I was broken, debilitated, self-loathing, and thought of a million ways to end my life here on Earth. In 2008, something amazing happened. After I had my fifth and final suicide attempt, I entered into counseling with a woman who helped me to change my life forever. I no longer live with depression or suicide on a daily basis. For me, the treatment modality EMDR, Eye Movement Desensitization Reprocessing, 
worked beautifully. EMDR is stimulating the left and the right brain as you process through trauma thoughts, feelings, and images. I remember the first session and walking away baffled as to why it seemed to work and questioning the process. After the second session, I didn't care. I could not believe that I was already starting to feel a lifting from the fog. I distinctly remember bouncing into the therapist's office one day, telling her I thought I was manic. In her very calm manner, she asked me why I thought so. As I started to list all the activities of my day and thoughts, she asked me one simple question. Lily, have you ever been just happy? Wow, so this is what basic, genuine, simple happiness was? <laughs> I had no idea. Having been so profoundly depressed, I never truly learned what happiness felt like, looked like, or sounded like. This was a radical turning point in my healing journey. One that led to another profound moment in my work with her. Having a clearer mind, now understanding that I can learn new feelings, experience new thoughts, be free from depression, and adopt a new story, I decided to become a therapist and open up private practice. When I presented the idea to my therapist, I expected her to tell me I was too broken or ill-equipped to do such a thing. Instead, without hesitation, she gave me her full support. This crucial moment helped me realize that our difficult pasts, traumas, sufferings, and negative thoughts do not define us. We can become who we desire to be, and there is always hope in becoming whole again. My charge today is to ask you to be honest with yourself. What is really happening in your thoughts? How do you feel about you? <coughs> do you like yourself? Do you appreciate who you are? Or are you putting on a mask every day? Are you trying to please others or be someone you're not? Are you too afraid to let someone know you're hurting inside or that you sometimes think about ending your life? Are you carrying guilt for things you have done or shame for what has been done to you? Are you hiding, afraid to discover who you are, concerned about what others might think if only they knew? We need to not only get honest with ourselves, but ask better questions to uncover and invite those suffering to safely share what is truly happening inside. We need to turn to the human, return to the human connection and step away from our computers and phones. We need to be inclusive, not exclusive. We need to be curious about how people manage and what matters to them, not just ask the question why. And we need to remember that humans can change at any age and at any point in their life. It's important to take inventory of our own thoughts and feelings too, acknowledging what we may be concealing or hiding, and allowing ourselves the opportunity to journey towards healing, mental wellness, and becoming whole. When we intentionally meet with others face-to-face -face or spend intentional time with ourselves, we give opportunity for real connection to take place. We give that person and ourselves an opportunity to be seen, valued, heard, and, and supported. When we ask how and what instead of why, it provides an opportunity to share from the heart. When we feel valued, not judged, heard, supported, and truly seen, our ability to blossom and become is significantly increased. Allowing what has been hidden to come into the light when what is hidden comes into the light, it can be understood and can lead to healing. I want to encourage you to take time and pay attention to yourself, 
Are you being honest, valuing yourself, withholding judgment, and nourishing yourself with positive and kind thoughts? And I want you to think about your, I want to think, hmm, I want you to think about your commitment to providing uninterrupted face-to-face time with others. Do you provide them an honest listening ear? Do you use language and responses that help them know they are valued? Do you ask questions that help them feel that they matter and what they have to say is important? Do you withhold judgments? And do you honor each role you play in life in a way that connects to your values? These are essential questions we need to ask to best determine what is needed to encourage and enhance the well-being of ourselves, our families, communities, work settings, and the everyday world around us. Will you dedicate yourself to being intentional in your everyday actions and words so that you are connecting with yourself and others in a healing way? Will you be brave and assess your daily thoughts and interactions so that you are making human connections, not allowing others to skate by unnoticed? Will you devote yourself to being honest and starting a healing journey? The best way to make the invisible scene is to speak up, reach out, share the truth, and commit to not journeying alone. The time for change, connectedness, growth, and mental wellness is now. Thank you. And that was Lily telling a story at my story, my superpower event sponsored by Asha International on Wednesday, May 29th in Hillsboro. Recorded by Chanel and edited and produced by myself, Aaron Yankee. Thanks for listening.